All right, so we are most certainly still in Galatians. <clears throat> Just as a little recap, um, in case anybody wasn't here last week. So, at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw this interaction that happened where Paul, after 14 years away, had went up to Jerusalem. And they were basically ironing out the fact that the Gospel did not include works-based requirements. You didn't have to become a Jew, and then you could become a Christian. So they ironed this out. Everybody agreed, and Paul left. Okay, so that's what had happened there. Now, this chapter is kind of a funny one because if you just read the first half, you think they've come to agreement, everything's good. We're going to see very quickly here that is not the case. <clears throat> so, we're going to try to get through verses 11 through 21 here. But starting with verses 11 through 13, it says, But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For, that, for prior to the coming of some men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and to separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision, fearing those who were from James. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So, like I said, when you take this into consideration, the fact of what we just read, he had just met with Peter, and they agreed on what the Gospel was. And yet here, we have the same thing going on. Really funny that this would be happening. So, where it says he, he began to withdraw and to separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. Peter, after having agreed with Paul, is now treating Christians, Gentile Christians, as if they might not be Christians. So he's, he's treating them like they've never even heard of Christ. He's treating them like this because they have not first, <coughs> excuse me, they have not first been under the law of Moses. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Peter knew better, aside from even just the meeting that he had with Paul, Peter knew better. And I want to go to the, the book of Acts to show that Peter knew better. So in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, and in chapter 11, if you want to follow along, it's up to you, but... Chapter 10, verses 10 through 16 first, we see where Peter had a vision, a vision from God. And it says, But he became hungry and wanted to eat, and while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky open up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And on it were all kinds of four-footed ants, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures of the earth and the birds of the sky. And a voice came to him and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, 
no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So in this first situation, we have God showing Peter that what was unholy before, which would include the Gentiles, is no longer unholy. This would have been a huge deal for Peter to have happen to him. This is, this is earth-shattering for someone who has lived like this their whole life, who comes from generations of living like this. So that's not where it ends, though, because in verses 44 through 48 in chapter 10, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. All the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter responded, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So, Peter and these other Jewish people these Jewish converts, they see the Holy Spirit fall upon Gentile believers, meaning they have been reborn into the faith. So Peter has a second instance where God has shown him that the Gentiles are part of the Christian faith. Now, there's one other situation that occurs here. And it's in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. And I won't go through all of them, but... It says, Now the apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when they came up to Jerusalem, the Jewish believers took issue with him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised and ate with them. But Peter began and explained at length to them an orderly sequence, saying, and then this is where he rehashes the vision that he had been given from God. After he gets done telling them about the vision that God had given him, it says, And behold, at that moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea came up to the house where we were staying. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send some men to Joppa, and have Simon who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift he also gave us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? This is what Peter is saying. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God. Well then, God has granted the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So, three instances where God has reinforced to Peter that these Christians, these Gentile Christians are Christians. Yet, we see what Peter is doing where he has withdrawn because 
some Christians who were originally Jews had come down to Antioch. And he's withdrawing from the Christians who were Gentiles. So Peter, I mean, needless to say, he was, he was a flawed man, uh, just as we all are. But Peter and even these, these, Gentile, or these uh, Jewish believers, these Jewish Christians, they seem to have really forgotten the kind of people that Jesus would sit with. Now, not the kind of people that Jesus would sit there and party with. Obviously, he didn't do those kind of things. But the people that he would sit with, who would, who would Jesus sit down and eat with? Anybody remember? Where it specifically said, you don't have to remember the verses, but he would sit with the sinners and with the publicans. And people called him out for that. They said, what are you doing sitting with these people? So we know what a sinner is. We all are one. Anybody know what a publican is? If you've watched um, The Chosen, you would have known what a publican is from the very, I think the first or second episode. So, what was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector, right? Matthew was a publican. He was not just a tax collector. He was a publican. What they mean by publican is that this was a Jewish person who was collecting taxes for the Roman government. Now, not only was he collecting taxes for the Roman government, but publicans were known to maybe charge a little bit extra so that they could skim a little bit more for themselves. So you have an invading government, an invading country, that takes people who live there and lets them do the dirty work, lets them be essentially the traitors and go and collect taxes for the Roman government, and then maybe pilfer a little bit extra for yourself as well. So people, if you were going to hate somebody, it was going to be a publican, because they were a traitor to your country, and they were doing the dirty work for the Romans. And they were, char they were, they were obviously extorting you for a little bit more. So that's the kind of people that Jesus was sitting with. That's the kind of person that Matthew was, when he was called into the discipleship. So people hated these people. They hated that they didn't think well of the sinners either, though people, even though everybody was a sinner. But these are the people that Jesus would sit with and call to repentance. So if Jesus would sit with these people, and not only that, when you see the verses where he is sitting with these people, who else is with him when he's doing this? The disciples are with him. So these same people that are making a fuss about this right now were sitting with Jesus Christ when he sat with the publicans and the sinners. It would have been well within reason to think that Jesus would sit with a Gentile convert to the faith. So Paul says that I opposed him to his face because he stood, he, uh, speaking of Peter, stood condemned. There's a lot of thoughts on this. A lot of people think that this may have happened at like a church potluck per se is what we would call it nowadays. But they back then they called it a, a love feast. A agape banquet is what they called it. So this may have been during what would normally be a very big gathering. A loving gathering of believers gathering together. Like-minded people. And all of a sudden Peter is either not sitting with these people 
Or he's possibly even turning them away from it because they probably were doing communion at the same time. They may have been may have been denying them communion while this was going on. So you can see why Paul would call Peter out to his face, not only to his face, but in front of everyone. Everyone's there. And this is very different from what we saw at the beginning of the chapter. In the beginning of Galatians, Paul goes to them discreetly. This one, he is not being discreet. So he's doing this because Paul, or because Peter was fearing those who were of the circumcision. The people that had come from James. Now, it's, it's really easy in Scripture to condemn Peter. And I think we've talked to this before. Because Peter goofs up a lot. Right here we see him caving to some kind of social pressure probably. But even Paul, who is obviously confronting him on this, he knows what this is like. He knows what it's like to do something that you don't want to do, that you shouldn't do. When we look in Romans, he talks exactly of this in uh, chapter 7, where he says, For I know the, the good, <clears throat> that good does not dwell in me, that is my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. So he's having, he talks of the same issue that he's having himself at that time that Peter is probably having right here. You know, and Peter did things like this all the time. He faltered all the time when he was not born again. Peter is the same one who, whose faith faltered when he was walking on water. And then he sinks, right? I mean, of all the miracles, uh, that's the biggest one to that's a big one to experience. He's actually walking on water and his faith falters. Peter's the same one who cuts off the soldier's ear when Christ wants him to yield. So Peter is not he's not above having mistakes. He he even denied our Lord three times. Three times the So Peter was not perfect, but what we do see in Scripture is that after he's born again, he does these things less often. He's being sanctified in his flesh. But right here we see where he has a moment. So maybe these people, maybe they were influential in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe it was a nostalgia for his old life in Judaism. Maybe they threatened him. We don't have all of the information there to know exactly what's going on. But however it happened, it was very effective because if you notice, the Scriptures go out of their way to tell us that even Barnabas seemed to have joined them. There's a significance in it talking about Barnabas because Barnabas was Paul's right-hand man to the Gentiles. They were going to the Gentiles for years. And yet all of a sudden in this, Barnabas has a moment too and sides with the Jewish people, even though he has been ministering to the Gentiles for years. And in fact, it's not too long after this that Paul and Barnabas end up splitting. They are no longer ministry partners, partners later down the road. <clears throat> so and it says that the rest of the Jews joined them in hypocrisy. So Peter has faltered. Barnabas has given in on this issue. 
And the rest of the Jews who were at this, this gathering, this potluck, this love feast, have started to follow them as well. And this is, the, this is a good example for any church where that, that responsibility of, of leadership is so important because everybody's watching. Everybody's watching to follow the lead of people who they think should know better. So whether somebody's a pastor, or an associate pastor, um, you know, a youth, a worship leader, a board member, a musician, a congregate. I mean, it's why it's important because everybody's watching. So when you fall into error, sometimes you can drag somebody down. That's why it's a good example there. So let's let's move on to verse 14 though. <clears throat> 14 and uh nope, just 14. But when I saw that we were that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? So this is where I said he's calling him out in front of everybody. You know, hopefully they didn't usher out the the Gentiles from from this feast. But Paul is giving Peter some accountability right here, some harsh accountability. Peter had been told to feed Christ's sheep, and yet here he was perhaps ushering some of the sheep out by the person who originally was persecuting the church. So there has to be, I'm sure that there had to have been some egos at play maybe. But what was at hand is what Paul says here in verse 14. The truth of the gospel is what the issue was at hand. That's why Paul was so fervent on this, because Peter was giving an example that the law was needed in order for a person to be in grace. That that was how a person could be right with God. Paul is calling him out because that is an incorrect interpretation of the gospel. And he, and he calls him a hypocrite to his face. Because he says, if you being a Jew live like a Gentile and not like the Jews, how are you telling these Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter, what are you doing? Because we know how you live now. You've had this vision from God. We know you don't live like a Jew anymore. You live like a Christian. So it was not just an act of hypocrisy by, by Peter, but it was impressing a, a false idea from his position of authority, whether he meant to do it or not. That's what was going on. Then <clears throat> verse uh, 15 and 16 here, where it says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a person, and here's where he really cuts to the core on it, knowing that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. So Paul is, is telling Peter, he says, come on, man, I know we have all we come from a similar background. We were raised in the Jewish faith, but we were not justified 
by that faith. We were not justified by that works that we were doing. He says that even we have believed in Christ Jesus. He's talking to Peter and saying, even we have attained our righteousness and our justification through Christ, not through living the law. Now he says, but through faith in Christ. I thought that that was kind of unique that he would say that. says, through faith in Christ. You know, through is, uh, sometimes I like to see the exactly what words mean. So through is kind of like moving from one side to the other of something, or continuing in a time to a completion of something, <clears throat> through a process, something like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not, just, it's not just saying a sinner's prayer and then you're good to go the rest of your life. It's not just being water baptized. Um, It's not becoming a member of a church. It's it's a lifelong thing, something that you are going through your entire life, a process inside of you because God is living inside of you. So, this is important because... That is what is justifying us, not the good things that we are going to do, but we do those because they're fruits. They're fruits of our faith, not the reasons for our faith. I want to go to uh, Psalms real quick. Uh, Psalms 143, 1-4 is a really good little set of verses here. And it says, <clears throat> the Psalm of David Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my pleadings. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant. For no person living is righteous in your sight. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places. Like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit feels weak within me. My heart is appalling within me. So you hear that place that David is coming from there? That it's not only a place, but he's, he's got a frame of mind going on at that time. And that's very similar to how a lot of people feel before they are saved. You know, they realize that they are not going to be able to do it on their own. That Christ is the only way, and that in Him is that life that everyone's looking for. That contentment, that purpose and that peace that everyone wants. So to be a Christian is obviously not the way this psalm says, but is a beautiful place to be in. Hopefully everyone agrees on that. So that's why Paul is fighting so hard for this gospel, for the gospel. That's why believing the gospel is so important for you and me. So let's go to 17 and 18 here. Where it says, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves also have been found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Far from it. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a wrongdoer. This is, when you read this, it might sound a little confusing at first, but it is the common objection that people will give against the Christian church. 
In fact, they may use it against you personally. What they are saying is that you have been found in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. And yet look at this person. They're still sinning. That's what they're saying. That is the objection that's going on here. And they're saying that if you're still sinning, even though you're in Christ, is Christ a minister of sin? So Paul says, far be it. <clears throat> the difference is, the sin that people are seeing is sin that is not deliberate, sin that is something that we are repenting of, and sin that is something that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us of as we go through our life. Not something that we're just living in. What did we call it before? Living, living in the mud? You know, it's, you're, not, you're not purposely doing this. So that's why Paul says, far from it, Christ is not a minister of sin. Christians still sin, but God is not holding it to their account. So the reason which Paul is amplifying here is that we run to Christ because we are sinners, because our works are bad, and that we can't justify ourselves with them. And if we tried, we'd fall flat on our face because we'd fail. <clears throat> God is guiding us. God is sanctifying us. And God's salvation is being given to us by grace. <clears throat> so we're going to go to verse 19 and 20 here. For through the law, and he's going to, he's going to give us a little bit better idea here. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul is not saying, and Christ has never said, that the law is bad. We talk about not wanting to be under the law. The law is not bad, but it is a task that we can never complete. That's why the law points us to Christ. The, the law is a holy standard that only Christ could uphold. So uh, Calvin, John Calvin said, he said to die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no coincidence in it and that it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. So the more Paul, or as he's talking to Peter, the more Peter or anybody tries to justify themselves with the law, the longer they remain dead. The longer they are, no, they are not in God's good graces. So when did Paul die to the law? When, when did you and I die to the law? It's when Christ was crucified on the cross. When you believed that and He lives in you, that's when you died to the law. So this gives us it gives us the perfect way of living, too, when you look at these verses here. And you, you'll miss it if you go through it too quick. This is why there's, a, there's an importance of, when you read Scripture, just you know, slow down. Enjoy yourself. It's not a race. Sometimes you see these, like, well, read the Bible in a year, things and stuff like that. And those are good, but if you get to where you're just trying to get through it, you'll miss things. So it says in here, and the life which I now live... I live by the faith in, Son of God, in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So, He's saying, 
We may live in this flesh, but we live by the faith. That's a big distinction because our flesh, the things that we want, is not our guide, is not our compass. Our faith is, our faith in Christ. That's our lifeline in there. And he says, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, Paul may be speaking of himself personally there, but God is speaking to you and to me when we read that verse there. And I want you to to really look at that for a second because he says, who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's in past tense. Okay? It's already happened. That is really important because God has done these things for us already. It's not something that needs to happen. It's showing that God has always loved you and has always wanted to give His grace to you. It's showing it in past tense because God's love is eternal for you. So the law is that guide, like we said, that guide to Christ, that guide that we can't, we can't follow. And it's showing us what Christ has already done for us. That's why He calls to everyone. That's why He died on the cross. That's why He was risen, so that He would have victory, and that if you choose to believe in Christ, you will have that same victory with Him. So we have one verse here, and then we'll close it out really quickly. And the verse itself really kind of sums it all up. But verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So when we read that, we can see that if we have the right attitude, or if we have the wrong attitude, we can, we can think of Christ's death wrongly. We can think of it as either necessary for our salvation, or we can think, well, I'm not that bad of a person. My sins are pretty small. I do a lot of good things, too. They surely outweigh them. That would be Christ dying needlessly, because if we take the Ten Commandments, we have all violated them. Everybody has. There's no perfect person. So God is looking for that, that person with humility. That's the person that has honor towards God, towards what God has done for us, because God wants to rescue imperfect people. He didn't come for perfect people. 